clothes that are comfortable, things that are comfortable, just everything. Yeah, it's because you've not been out. Be high dressed for comfort, not sexiness. I think that's the thing. It gets worse when you get older, love. Please, what would you know about getting older? (laughs) How old are you actually? Yeah, firstly, you don't look it, but secondly, that's not that much difference between me. I mean, I'm 34 on Saturday, so... That's good. On Saturday? Happy birthday to you. I know. I don't look 34, though. I still get... I got ID'd the other day. I get ID'd all the time. Because people instantly look at you short and think, well, you're you're a child. And it's like... (laughs) Especially with a mask on, you can't see a beard or anything, so... Of course, yeah. I'm going to say, if if you had a shave... You look really. If I, did, if I have a shave, I look like I could get you into legal trouble. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Shades of Gay, and this is Chris. Uh, well, thanks for that introduction. You know you're not on Thursday Beach right now. I know I'm not, but I'll be taking over that job soon, so... Oh, is that your goal? Is that oh, your yeah. post-lockdown I'm, I'm, goal, is yeah, it? Yeah, I'm going to be the new Keith. Refreshed, oh, browner, more caramel, more stunning. <laughs> <laughs> I consider you as being something... Someone, something. Wow. So, someone. someone, something, somebody, <laughs> some who, yeah. Somebody that's uh, got a lot to say for themselves. I do. I would. I. I always. I always preface it by saying I've lived a hundred lives in one life. I don't know how I've managed to do that. So how many cats is that? That's over ten. Oh my! I don't know, babe. I'm not. I'm not good with pussy. I can't count pussies. <laughs> oh not that kind of show. Love. It is, you know. So we're going to find out if you are listening to Chris. Do you want to just give your social media now and then we'll do it again at the end? Hi, so I'm Chris Vanji. That's Chris Vanji on Twitter, um, Story of Tart on Instagram. And I am just the social media slut with a heart of gold. Um, you have got I must admit, you have got a heart of gold. Let's go right back to the very beginning with your first memory of life okay very good place to start thank Um, you well i grew up in hornchurch in essex which is um a very whitewashed part of essex we were probably one of the only brown families around um i'm anglo-indian i'm i've got a little bit spanish in me so that's indian english and spanish and um i grew up in an area where we were instantly the on the outside of everybody else and like an instant target of people but um, my first memory was probably being in infant school and having a girlfriend when I was like three. But is that just because she was nice? You like? Yeah, she was nice. She was she was like a girl that I wanted to kiki and chat with, and she it was, was kiki. Hang on, was three. You don't know what the word kiki is. No, but I'm thirty three now. I know what a kiki is, bitch. I I I just remember she was like brunette and she was pretty, and we used to just talk. We used to talk about nothing, you know, talk about butterflies and talk about. I remember us having a fake wedding in the playground, <laughs> but it was never it was never like oh i want to have a relationship with this girl it was i because i always knew that i liked men from that age i would say i mean that's my earliest memory i would say i think from a past life i've always known what sex is and so i've always had this in my mind of what gay is and what gay means and the fact that i was i was attracted to men Mm. But I do need to go back to the fact that you said from your past life. That's that's not going to be the norm for most people. So I, I, I'm 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 a Wiccan. So um, that that's something that I kind of labelled when I was a teenager. I I never I could never put my finger on it of of having these um, flashbacks and these um, um, premonitions of, of of stuff of and not feeling feeling feelings and emotions around me. Yeah. And not being able to put a finger on why I was feeling that. And when I was 12 years old, I saw my aunt dying in a in a dream. And the next day, it basically happened exactly how I saw. I In a dream, I'd seen my parents telling me. I'd seen the feelings that I felt. I'd seen everything. And it was an aunt I was very close to. She lived in Broadstairs. And it was always an event of going to see her. Mm. And she was one of the only places that I ever felt real love because I never felt that from my parents or from my grandparents. And I saw it as a sign that it was something that I needed to look into. And that's when I started to read up. I went to the library. I started to read books about being a witch Mm. and 
witchcraft and what that meant. I had a very limited like Hollywood experience of it from like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Charmed and stuff like that, you know. So Wiccan's a witch. Yeah, exactly. So you're watching Willa and Tara on TV, but it's not that. It, It was just kind of saying, I see this in myself, but I don't know what it is and trying to help clarify that. And then when I was 14 or 15, I started to visit a local um, Wiccan store and I'd be around the crystals and people that were in the same situation and were able to help and guide me into my identity Mm. and not, not lead me down, down the road, but just try and open a path into myself. And I found a lot of acceptance there that I had never really felt before. But was that acceptance for being a Wiccan or acceptance because you knew you're different inside? Acceptance for just being myself. Yeah. For being welcomed into a community of people that could see that you were different, not in a sense of my skin, not in a sense of anything else, but in the sense that I had some, I had these gifts inside me and I started reading palms and, and it wasn't something I just was taught to do. It was something I just instilled felt and the next thing you know you're reading somebody's palm and they're crying wow. as you're as you're kind of reading their their life history because they, they had never experienced anything like that before but with palm reading is it only positive stuff or do you give negative things as well no it was negative it was negative wow. stuff as well I, I you know you see what you see and you can't you can't fake that and it's not something that i've done for a very long time because I kind of put all of that aside for a while in my life, but I still have my crystals everywhere. Mm. I have my dowsing pendulums, I have my tarot <laughs> cards, I have everything. But I don't in I I don't hold myself down to any religion. I just um I believe that you can be a spiritual person of whatever spirit or religion you feel that you are, mm. and just do that individually and you're on your own path without kind of joining an almost cultish kind of organization yeah that kind of that you're kind of forced into doing you know i i I don't i don't feel that i feel like it's something that will never go away from me because it's a part of me i've still get premonitions now they may not be the most useful things you know (laughs) you're not going to see the freaking lottery numbers that are going to make you a millionaire (laughs) hang on a minute you see silly things you know sometimes you see serious things i remember seeing um the world trade center when that happened and having that kind of nightmare a few days before, but not being able to piece, because sometimes you can't piece things together until they actually happen. So like if you had the premonition of the world trade, you don't necessarily know that it you is don't, the world trade. Because you don't, you don't necessarily know, but you know that you're in this situation where you can feel this thing happening and you may see things happening. You may see something collapsing, but you don't specifically know it's exactly that in no. that point. And I think there are some people that have more intuition than I do. And the thing is, I haven't, trained my gift i mean i've astral projected before i've seen myself but i can't say that it's something that i've done a lot i've done all the time but it's something that just creeps out of you at the weirdest times and i'm an empath i feel people i feel people's pain and love and hurt and all of the all of the things that you feel in in the world is that not exhausting though can you switch it off and on I can't switch it off. No. It's very tiresome. You can kind of try and ignore it, mm. but it always creeps back to you because it's something that I I was told when I was young that it comes from somewhere on my dad's side of the family hereditarily, but I don't know any explanation of that, anything, because my family have... Well, my family firstly don't believe in witchcraft, but they don't agree mm. with witchcraft, and then they don't understand any of that whole thing. Yeah, going back to your family, you said that you've pushed aside the whole um, premonition, the witchcraft, the palm reading thing. I, I'm guessing you said that you didn't really have the best relationship with your family. You was more comfortable with your aunt. I grew up in a family where I pretty much just didn't exist. I was born 16 years after my brother. We were the only only kids, but he is also gay. And I have no relationship with him oh. because he's a psychopath. And he still lives in the household with my parents, which is a big barrier between us. He kind of just grew up being um, abusive and volatile and cruel and mean and all of these things. Like when you think about when I was a child, well, 16 years younger than him and he was just a volatile monster. It's it's a very, very hard thing. He was obsessive and controlling and violent. My parents' only answer ever was 
oh, anything for a quiet life, just let it go. My dad's thing was just let it slide, just ignore it, just let it go. Anything, if he hit me, just let it go. Anything, just let it go. And this is somebody that I'm supposed to live with in the same household. You know, when I was 10 years old, he disappeared for a month and the police were involved. Nobody knew where he was. He was down the road in the apartment that he lived in, just hiding away there. They'd been there and he'd just hidden away at those times that he'd been there. The police had been there. And he has a lot of some kind of associative or psychotic disorders that they just refuse to believe in and they just ignore. And he's a very dangerous person that still lives in the household. I mean, he's almost 50 and he still lives in the household and they just let him be. And it's a very, it's always been a barrier between us. Is is this letting him be a cultural thing from an Indian kind of background of a shame? My dad seems to have a thing of thinking that anybody that is mentally unstable is going to be mm. locked in a loony bin and going to be on drugs and whatever. And it's like, I try, I've had so many conversations with them and trying to say, but you are actually actively making this person worse by just leaving them in his, in the attic, just talking to himself going around choking my mom doing all of these things that are not gonna it's not gonna help anything mm. it's gonna make the situation so much worse and what happens when my parents pass away and he's left on his own what's gonna happen you know he's not my responsibility mm. and i've had this con- argument and conversation with my parents so many times because i never grew up with love or adoration from my parents because they were always constantly dealing with him and that's that's i guess that's before the whole coming out moving out the house and the way you got treated at school because you said you didn't have the the best time at school school was a nightmare um i always just dealt with bullying always um it it was for the color of my skin it Mm -hmm. was for loving the music that i loved because i loved spice girls and i loved steps and i loved desk club seven and praised for that scooch and you know all of these camp pop bands but and doing the dance routines i remember doing the last thing on my mind dance routine at school and you know you can imagine the stuff that i got from doing that and then you add on like being obviously like being over what people consider camp or gay all of these things that i was just a walking target with people yeah. especially once i got to senior school and in, in, in Essex, like it's a very, it's a primarily white area of Essex. It's very conservative. It's very Brexit. And then you're dealing with being one of the only brown families there. And you've got this kid that's like mm. overtly camp, just mincing around singing Say You'll Be Mine by Steps. It's not, it's not the, um, it's, it's not the easiest thing to deal with. It's, it's not like you're hurting anybody by doing this. No, God, no, you're not hurting yeah. anybody. But, you know, growing up, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. people were instantly like, well, that's something that I don't understand and that's something that's not like me. And so I'm going to say something about it and I'm going to yeah. do something about it. And I, ha- I would have so many people not even realize what my ethnicity was, what the color of my skin was. Yeah. I had people think that I was black. They'd call me the N-word. Yeah. They'd call me packy, which is a word that I don't usually tend to say because it's a triggering yeah. word for me. But that always hit hard. You'd have people come into school, people that you never spoke to, that would say, you you should go home where you belong because my wow. parents told me to tell you that. And I've and it's people that I've never spoken to, didn't know anything about. And it just pushed me inside. It enveloped me and made me want to not speak anymore. But what was it... I know you, you described your family from being uh, Indian and that. So just for people listening, what colour would you describe yourself as? Oh, I'm gorgeous caramel. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what I like about you. You've gone through yeah. all that and yet you've come out saying, well, actually. You know what? You have to. You have to. You know, if people walk up to you and say, you look like shit, you look like fucking dog shit, then what are you going to do with it? You can't walk around your life saying, I look like dog shit. I turned it around and said, you know what? No, I'm... I'm actually caramel. I'm chocolate milkshake. I'm all of the things that you find that you enjoy. I'm all of those (laughs) things. And you're just choosing that one aspect of me that's completely different to you. Because I could read you for being a pasty little fucking bitch. I could read you for the fact that you are blotchier than the sun. But (laughs) I would not do that. I could do it, but I won't do it because 
as a brown person, you're instantly like, oh, you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I grew up in a household where there wasn't a lot of love, where it was literally like, well, you're a pile of shit, you're not worthy of anything, yeah. and you're not going to amass to anything or do anything in with your life. So, But wh why did you get that? I think because my parents were so obsessed with their child before, and he'd been that child for 16 years, that they didn't have time for me. They didn't have patience or a need for me. I mean, I... I was on my own a lot hmm. in my life. Um, just in my bedroom in childhood, no, nothing to do. So I would take solace in music. Music yeah. was the thing that I loved. Um, dreaming of the future was the thing I loved. I used to write songs. I used to do... Yeah, yeah I used to... I. I was that silly little child. I used to write like a whole life story of what my music career would be as I was growing <laughs> up. And like, this would be my single and this would be my album and this would be my second album. You know, all of these stupid Oh, you went far things. ahead. I went far ahead. I, oh. I had the fucking greatest hits, like literally. <laughs> now my greatest hits is just my butthole. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> So when you're being bullied at school, for the reasons that you said, but you didn't have a home life either, where do you turn Music, Steps, S Club 7, Britney Spears. Okay. When Britney Spears came around, that was like, oh my God, who is this person that's only a few years older than me? Mm. And I'm obsessed with, she's living this incredible life and just being authentically herself and not being afraid to be sexual or pretty or provocative or any of these yeah. things I wanted to be, you know? But I was, I was this short, fat Indian kid. What could I do? Oh, yeah, because we need to address that, the fact that cause you're sat here now and I don't think you can get much thinner than you are. <laughs> no, I, I turn so, to a side and I just disappear. When did this whole, you said that you was actually quite fat. So when did all that come about? Was well, I, I was, the thing is, at a really young age, I would actually get told off all the time for not eating. I would eat half my meal and just leave it. I, I, I was skinny as a rake when I was a kid. Mm. And then suddenly eight or nine, I just started eating and I couldn't stop. And... I think it's because I think a lot of that is down to the fact that the bullying was getting worse at school. I was feeling more alone at school and I was feeling like I had to hide everything. I was yeah. having to hide who I was all the time. So I just kept eating stuff, you know, stuff that I wouldn't have ate before. Um, this for comfort. Yeah, for comfort, because what else was there to do? I was I was in my bedroom alone through all my childhood. Mm. What else was there to do in my life? You know, other than listen to music and eat, I, I had nothing else. Yeah. This is the thing. I right. know that I wasn't that overweight, but it instantly flagged something, especially when I went into senior school hmm. and people would literally be like, you fat brown fuck. Wow. That's okay. what people would call, people yeah. would call me. Um, people would call me cathead because um, my parents wouldn't get me to get my hair cut too often. So my hair would grow out mm. and they would, kids would claim it looked like a cat was on my head and that was something that just haunted me every every day it was yeah it was horrible because it was something out of my control my parents didn't give, didn't give a fuck about me going get my hair cut did you tell them that you needed oh yeah i told them they didn't they didn't they didn't care they had other stuff to deal with they didn't wasn't it didn't bother them would you say that you had abusive relationship growing up parent wise yeah verbally abusive and my parents themselves were physically abusive between one another. They still are now. It's it's a very volatile, scary relationship. I look at my parents' house like a haunted house. Oh. And it's the thing, because nobody's died in there. They're still alive, but it's like just ghosts. It's just yeah. ghosts in every single room in every single corner of the house. Wow. And a bit obviously being an empath, you can feel this kind yeah. of thing. Every time I go there, I feel like this darkness ascend me. And it's literally like I'm a child all over again. It's it's a very controlling, chastising environment. It's something that I try not to think about too much because it's so dark. Yeah. Right. So when I was 14, I bought my first issue of Attitude magazine, mm. which was, um, I'd, I'd eyed it up in the supermarket for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I'd, it was, it was a naked issue with Lee from Steps on the cover. And I was like, I was a big Steps fan. I was like, I need that. I need that in my life. <laughs> he looks beautiful. I need that. I need, I need that. So um, I bought it and I was literally the kind of thing of like just going and going up to the till and buying it. And then that led to an obsession with like just kind of 
of anything, it was the back pages of the magazine. It was all of the like phone lines, uh-huh. all the sex lines, all that stuff. I became, I was so intrigued in that. And um, I'd always been an artist. So I started to draw men based on like what I saw on the magazine. And I just had them everywhere. Like the drawers in my bedroom were just full of attitude and gay times. And then these, these pictures that I drawn of men. Yeah. And then one day I came home from school when I was um, 14 or 15. And my, my dad's, my dad, my dad was weirdly nicer than ever normal, ever usually. Mm. And led me upstairs and then was like, oh, so we've been looking for this documentation that we need and we can't find it. So we looked in your drawers and we found all of this. Do you going to explain this to us? You're going to explain what all this faggy shit is about. Mm. And my heart just sank because it was like my safe space. It was my comfort zone. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I just broke down oh. because I, I was, I literally had to be like, no, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just, I, I don't, I can't explain this. And my mum was disgusted with me. My mum wouldn't even look at me. Um, it was just, it was just a horrible situation when I had no, next to no relationship with my family, family anyway. And then you're forced to live in the same household yeah. as them. What are you going to do when they say, well, why are you like this? Why is, why, why are you doing this? This is so wrong when you can't explain yourself. Yeah. I suppose when you think you you've had a really bad relationship with your family, it suddenly got worse. Yeah. It was that time of when you're 14 or 15, you, you have to, you're being forced at school to be like, what's your career going to be? What your opportunity is going to yeah. be? And I'd um, signed up to do my work experience in the school. And they were like, if they find out you can't be a teacher, because if you're going to be a teacher, people are going to think you're a pervert for, for, for being mm. gay. And people are going to not going to let you near their kids. And they're going to be disgusted with you. And, and it just put me off during the whole thing, period. It it, it, yeah. it sent me in my box because I had everybody from every angle telling me, you're wrong for doing this, you're wrong for doing that, you're wrong for liking pop music, you're wrong for being the colour that you are, and then you're wrong for just just for liking men. Yeah. And that just sent me into a spiral of not wanting to do anything and just hiding away from people more and more. And with your family saying that you can't be a teacher because they'll see you as a pervert or paedophile, that's kind of a projection to what they're thinking about Yeah, what you must be like it now. Told, it, it told me everything that they yeah. thought. And um, my older brother, who I mentioned, is also gay. I have no relationship with him. So it made me think, well, if they've had him, is that the kind of thing that they think about him as well, you know, and then they think about me? It's a, yeah. it's, it's a hideous thing to think about supposed family but i think i at that stage then i was still telling myself that family isn't anything it's cracked up to be you know yeah nobody's this picture perfect family that you've seen i think it's an actual rarity to find a family that is that yeah but you managed to find a boyfriend yeah i did <laughs> I, did, I did i did a lot of hooking um when, as soon as i was 16 i was like on the yahoo chat rooms i was messaging any and every guy i could find and then um, when I was 16, I remember I remember finally finding a guy to be like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll meet up with you. And then we met up, we met up outside Sainsbury's. Oh, classy. Um, well, there's very little things in Hornchurch. There's nothing in Hornchurch. So it's like we met. I said, I'll meet you outside Sainsbury's. And he walked past me because he didn't even realize because oh. I looked so young, fresh, fresh faced and stuff like in my double denim, like I was a member of fucking Bewitched. Um, and so I got into this complete stranger's car and then he took me to a woods. Oh, he took shit. me to a woods by a gym and I ended up sucking his dick. But I'll tell you, the minute that my mouth touched his dick, it was like the, the angels coming in. It was like, ah. It was just like, it was just like the heavens, heavens proceeding because it was like everything yeah. that I'd ever wanted and more. But... <laughs> but then um he knelt down to suck my dick and he knelt in dog shit and i realized oh no this is life this is gay life (laughs) because then he spent the rest of the um next however long it was talking about oh god i've got dog shit on my jeans how am i going to explain this to my girlfriend and i didn't know he had a girlfriend at that time and that's when i that's when i learned the dangers of by curious men (laughs) i still get a lot of straight and by curious men hit me up um that thing for you not i i I just find myself, I, I find myself attracted to any man, mm. but um, it's it's just every individual story. Yeah. And for some reason, I seem to be a beacon for like straight and bi-curious men. I don't know why it is. 
I have no yeah. idea. I don't know whether it's because of my look, because I'm short, but I'm petite, but I'm also hairy, yeah. beardy. I don't know whether it's that kind of cross thing, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ride it for wherever I can. I don't <laughs> I don't I don't care. I'll, I'll take you down the road. But so meeting all of these guys at that age led me to meet somebody when I was seventeen, just turning eighteen, mm. and that then suddenly was like, okay, I've met somebody that I love that that will take me out of this situation, and I'm yeah. And I ended up moving in with that person when I was 18. That was a very difficult thing, having to explain to my parents that I'm moving in with somebody that I've met six months ago. It gave me an ability to be myself. Yeah. And um, it gave me a a friend and a soulmate, you know. It It hasn't been the easiest of relationships, but it's given me somebody that I couldn't live without yeah. in a lot of different ways. Was it all rosy? No, no, it, was, it wasn't rosy at all. You know, it never is. <laughs> Loving somebody and then living with somebody are two very different things. Mm. And I noticed that very early. Like, there's like, he has a lot of um, aggressive tendencies, and um, he can be verbally abusive, mentally abusive. Right. I just, I just let it be. I just, I just thought, well, this is my life. I've got right. I've I've got no family that love me. I've got very little friends in my life and I've got this person and this person at least seemingly loves me for me. But you're normalizing that behavior throughout the whole of your life though, aren't you? By well, saying I, well, this is acceptable. I, well, I, I was because my n- my normal life was mm. that I've just been abused my whole life so I'm just used to it. This is just what I'm going to be dealing with the rest of my life and I've never turned to drink, I've never turned to drugs or any of that mm. stuff. I've just kind of been sober throughout life of people treating me like shit and i just figured that that's what my life is going to be you know but yeah it was that that conditional love with him while he was going through this stage with you yeah it was um i i i just turned to food more like of what i did before i just kept eating kept eating mm. and putting on weight and then you know i started to feel less attractive in myself and then i didn't want to have sex and then he just started getting sex somebody somewhere else. Yeah. And he would start cheating and wouldn't would admit to cheating. I knew he was cheating. I'd found messages he was cheating. I'd had people turn to me and say, he's on this website looking for sex. Because it was before, I think it was before Grindr or anything like that. It was squirt, squirt.org, which is like a cruising website. At at that point, like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. You know, I didn't think I had anything, any other option. And he isn't a bad person, but mm. I think he deals with things in different ways. He deals with things by being aggressive and mm. I deal with things by hiding inside myself. And he would just say, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not cheating. Yeah. I was, that's BS. I'm not doing that. And like, you could have printed out evidence in front of him and he'd be like, no, it's not the truth. It's a like, video of him. It's like yeah. gaslighting. Yeah. It's, it's gaslighting, you know, saying that this isn't the truth, but it is. And mm. that was a very difficult thing to do because I feel like, I remember I would just stand in the kitchen crying, cooking, thinking this is what my life is going to be for the rest of my life. This is all I have to deal with. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I want to live to, I don't want to live to 30, let alone 50. And things just got darker from there. Things just got darker. It was, it's hard when you've been in that situation, but my solace has always been music. Music Mm. has always been the thing that I've turned to that's always got me through everything. Okay. And was this the stage where you started to get work in music? I always loved girl bands and pop acts, like like I said, Britney Spears and everything. But I remember 2004, I got my ears turned by this band called Sirens. There was this Newcastle girl band um, and they were doing like R&B hip hop. And I was like, oh, I love this. Mm. This is new. This is fresh. This is funky. This is kind of urban. It was kind of all saints, but with edge. And I liked it. And... I just really got into them. And then the next, over the next year, I remember buying the album and being obsessed with it. And then I set up a fan site and all of this stuff. And then the label got wind and the label kind of turned to me to be like, oh, you do this, you do that. That's really, really cool. And then the next thing I knew, I was doing promotions for the label. I was I was doing um, music. I was doing remix videos. I was um, doing press releases. I was doing all of this stuff that was really cool. I was doing social media, you know. Mm. All of these amazing, exciting things in a community involving music that I freaking loved. It was such a passion project. I mean, I'm in the credits for their albums. (laughs) That's such an exciting thing for somebody that grew up 
looking at the booklets and credits in albums and thinking, this is amazing. Thinking this product behind the whole thing is incredible. Mm. And being a part of that package was just something so exciting and special to me. Then you found somewhere where you're accepted also. Yeah, I found somewhere I was accepted. I didn't have to answer to anybody. I was sent checks that cleared, you know, <laughs> from doing video edits. That was yeah. that was something good, you know, that was something rewarding for something that grew out of passion. I didn't do it to make money or to do this or to get my name on anything, but I ended up making music videos that were being aired on TV. Wow. And that was something really exciting and amazing to me because I wasn't a professional. I hadn't studied it. I'd done graphic design in college, mm. but I hadn't I hadn't done video editing or anything like that. It was just something that I just kind of made, taught myself. And would you class that as a turning point in your life? Things were going up now? It was, It was, what I'll say it was a turning point was in 2011, I think it was, they were doing a music video in Newcastle and they and they and the label manager said to me, do you want to come up and do this video? We're hiring all these models. Do you want to, they really want you to be in the video. And I thought, okay, well, I have to say yes to that. So... I got ready to go there. It was very short turn time. They were paying for my travel. So that was mm. fine. Paying for my hotel stay. That was cool. But then I got there. I met them and it was amazing. But then I froze up and I couldn't do the video because I was so self-conscious of myself and how I looked that I couldn't do it. And I just remember crying. Mm. I just remember crying so much thinking, I can't do it. I can't be on camera. I yeah. can't be this disgusting fat slug on camera. Yeah. I can't because that's how I felt about myself. I can't do that. And I really regret that. Now I really regret that yeah. I didn't do that. But at the time it was me being authentically myself. I wasn't that person that was able to. Now, if anyone said to me, do you want to be on camera in a music video? Fuck yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course I will. I'll shake my ass and spread my cheeks on video <laughs> camera. I don't care. I don't think that's a music video, is it? <laughs> It depends. It depends what the beat is involved. No, but you're saying you couldn't do that music video because you had control taken away from you in the past about the yeah. way you look, the way you feel and that. But now... And what I was allowed to do and what I wasn't allowed yeah. to do. Like, I had to get permission from my partner to even go to Newcastle. Oh, did you? Yeah, I had to be... I, I couldn't... You know, you're in a, if you're in a relationship, you can't just be like, I'm going to go up and do this. He was like, well, why would you want to do that? You can't do that. And that put a lot of doubt in my head about me even doing that. Mm. so you've literally gone from abuse at school some kind of mental abuse at home to abuse in relationship yeah. how do you get out of that circle well it was it was difficult because in 2014 i um i didn't feel right in myself my body didn't feel right i'd started to lose weight i was making myself lose weight because i, I didn't feel well mm. and um i just didn't feel myself so i started to go to a doctor for blood tests because i thought i had diabetes i thought maybe i had like early diabetes i wasn't sure and they were like, well, it's not that, but we're not sure what it is. Mm. So I went through six months of, of tests, of blood tests, and going to this place and that place, have all these different kinds of tests done. But I was doing it on my own because my partner was saying, no, you're imagining it. You're making it up. Don't be silly. Don't worry about it. You're just making this up. It's ridiculous. Mm. It ended up after six months of finding out I had chronic kidney disease because I was born with um, a an undergrown kidney. I'd had all these problems when I was growing up through childhood. I spent a lot of my life through Great Ormond Street Hospital. Yeah. And it had developed into chronic kidney disease, stage three. And I was sitting there on my own in a doctor's surgery thinking, well, being told that if I get to stage five, I need to go on dialysis. I need to have a transplant, all of this stuff. Mm. Just being daunted and thinking I'm on my own. And I remember walking home from the doctors in the rain thinking I'm on my own this whole time. And I, I was mad. It left me feeling mad and angry that I'd been fighting through all of this on my own with no family that really cared. My partner, who I was legally married to, just not really caring. Wow, you got married to him. Yeah, we were married. Um, yeah, we're still married now. I mean, it's been a few years now since I, I left him, but we're still we're still legally married. But, you know, that means so many things. I've heard so many situations of people that have been like separated and dating other people and still legally married. You know, it doesn't really... It's not something that crosses my mind even. Okay. So yeah, I I had this fire inside me. I was mad. And then mm. I just turned my focus on everything being about him and his life and his career and all of this stuff into thinking I've got to do something for myself. So I started to continue to lose weight and lose weight and lose weight. And then it ended up in an eating disorder. Wow. And then 
through all this time that he was cheating, I'd kind of started cheating myself because I started freaking out about not knowing what he was doing. And I would, he doesn't know it. He didn't know any of this, but I was going and I was getting HIV tests all the time because I didn't know what he was up to. I didn't know his status or anything. And even though we weren't having sex, it was still freaking me out. Mm. And then I started to think to myself, well, why am I doing all of this? And I'm not getting anything out of this. So I started cruising and I started cheating with people and meeting, yeah. meeting guys and all of this stuff that would have probably never happened had that happened. But I can't really change any mm. of that. You know, it's not something that I ever thought would have been in me. But then I met somebody that I kind of became a little obsessed with. Okay. So I met this I met this guy. He was like, an, he was an English teacher and he was Scottish and he had a gorgeous accent. And I just became infatuated with him because he was somebody I met and he just brought me into his life really firmly and instantly. And I didn't realize until months after that he was a narcissist and that he was just kind of the Mm. typical narcissist. They bring you in and then they push you out and replace you with somebody else as soon as possible. And he had about seven or eight different guys on the go. And How do you find these people? I'm a magnet for them. Oh, yeah. I'm a magnet for them. I think people look at me and they think I'm easily manipulative and they are very easily drawn towards me. And I am I go into every friendship and relationship um, blind. I always see the best in everybody. You know, I meet somebody, I feel like I meet somebody and I feel like I know them instantly. I just mm. take them face value, never think a bad thing of them because I always think the bad thing of myself. I don't think the yeah. bad thing of anybody else. But that opens you up to somebody who's after treating you like shit to go, right, I can see that vulnerability there and go yeah. straight in. So Yeah, and this this guy was very also very controlling. So I'm in a controlling relationship and then I'm meeting somebody on the side that's controlling and telling me, well we can't do this, but we can do that. And I won't let you do this, but you can do that. And I and he had a partner as well. And he was like, I, I just feel bad for his partner because yeah. he had seven or eight, nine different guys on the go and like all of this stuff. And then he's telling me, well, you can't suck my cock, but you can do this and you can do that. And like, and it, and you know, it might, but yeah. when you meet somebody like it makes you want more. The minute he turned to somebody else and was like, well, I'm in love with this person. I was like, well, you told me you had feelings for me. And he was like, oh, I don't remember saying that. And it's like, well, but you fucking said it to my face, you know, it's gaslighting again. But I just became so turned on this person thinking that's my future. What do I do to get this person to like me? Mm. But I didn't give a fuck about myself. And I started losing weight and weight because I wasn't eating. And next thing you know, I'm losing another stone in a month when I've gone from when I'm nine stone and I've gone to eight stone in a month. And Mm. there's nothing of me because I'm just living off of caffeine and upset. Yeah. It's so this turns into an eating disorder then, doesn't it? Yeah, it was wild. Yeah. And obviously I tried I mean, I mentioned this to you before, but I tried mm. to kill myself. Um, I tried I tried to drown myself because I'd been having these dreams of like seeing me drown myself at the sea. And it sounds really silly and ridiculous and dramatic, but it's very dark and deep to mm. do that because I felt like I had nothing to live for. Yeah. I felt like I had nothing and nobody to live for. Everybody my whole life has told me I'm shit. I'm worthless. I've got no huge amount of friends in my life. I've got very small amount of people that would even know I was gone if I went. And that was the point that I went, no, I've got, I can't live like this anymore. And I brought it upon myself to try and change this situation and make my future brighter than my past was. I started documenting everything. I started writing a blog called getting the d getting the d yeah getting the d for, for depression but right. then also it's a it's the yeah. dichotomy like of like the, yeah it's the, it's the thing of also getting the d as in getting the dick <laughs> but that's why i did it you know yeah. i wanted it to be kind of humorous but then also kind of real that kind of that helped for a long time because i would do it through my travels i went to manchester to try and find myself for a week and then i went to berlin um not berlin munich for a while and to just kind of like center myself and find who I was as this person, as somebody that was separated, that helped a lot. But then it also kind of turned into me writing just heartbroken, heartbroken, forlorn poetry all the mm. time. And it was, you know, it's a positive and a negative at the same time because it got me out of, 
it got that out of my system yeah. and it helped me get over it. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to look back at it and probably cringe yeah. at all the stuff I wrote. Yeah, but that's a process of you recovering. Yeah. That's very important. I, I'll be honest, I did I did look at, um, when I was coming here, I did look at one of the poems that I wrote mm. back then because I wrote a poem about wanting to kill myself. Did you yeah. want to read a couple of lines from it? I could if you want, but it mm. might be a bit corny and terrible. But I'll I'll give it a shot. Um, so this is a poem I wrote in 2016 called The Sea. So obviously I've just explained like how I'd had these dreams about wanting to kill myself. And I think I think it kind of speaks for itself. I haven't read these to anybody ever. People have read them. You don't have to. But I haven't read them to anybody. No. I look toward the burning sun and wonder where my life went wrong. When did it go dark? When did I lose my spark? Was it the heartbreak I encountered or the abuse that had been showered? Was it the hands that once held mine leaving? Is it the fact that my heart's still beating? Eyes wide open, but I feel blindness. Friends around, but I just hear silence. Was it his eyes that once engrossed me? Could it be his arms that once enveloped me? Was it my parents who taught me I'm wrong? Is it their words that haunted me all along? Is it the skin that I cannot change? Perhaps the teeth I want rearranged? The nose that I wish was smaller, the fact that I dream of being taller, my organs that are declining, my God, I can't stop whining. My pessimism repulses me, but spewing self-hatred compulses me. So somebody please enlighten me on why the sea is beckoning me to wash away every problem that I see. It's calling to me. It's calling to me. Wow. That's just melodrama, isn't it? <laughs> no, but I mean, the good work comes from being... Yeah, it comes, yeah. you know, the best work comes from heartbreak. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel that way. But with you doing these blogs and writing these poems, now you saw yourself, it, it's, it's an online mental health journal, really, isn't it? So you saw yeah. yourself coming out of this. Yeah, and even though I don't really do the blog now, it kind of spread out into me following that route on social media and just trying to be as honest and authentically myself on social media and i hope that shows out you know i may i may provide this provocative side of myself but i mm. also provide a very honest open real raw side of myself well, that's something we need to talk about because if anyone was your social media now yes. they'll see a completely different side to you to what we've been just talking about so oh, baby they'll see every side of me <laughs> No, and even more if you pay for it. So, um, <laughs> so from all these this poetry, and you you started you're going through these bad relationships, which you've stopped dating now. Yeah, where's where's this leap that happened between that to now you taking control of yourself and and showing what you do on social media? Because what is it? Do you do? I do, I do everything. Yeah. No, when I when I ended that long term relationship, I did start dating dating a bunch of people, and I just suddenly felt more sexually free and sexually liberated and able to be myself because I hadn't been doing that publicly for a long time. And I felt like I could just be myself. And I suddenly I was signing myself up for doing these photo shoots and um, dating these bunch of guys that felt either way about me doing these things. Mm. You know, I was signing up for doing porn and all of these things that went either way or the other you know i was doing xtube i was focusing on that kind of stuff and i was doing well on xtube i i remember posting a video that i didn't really think anything of it was just randomly like oh can you film this video of me while i'm sucking your dick and the next thing you know it was the number one most viewed video on xtube and it was like in the on the home page and stuff like that it's kind of crazy but it's amazing but I'm guessing that you you wasn't bothered about the validation from your family or your friends at this point because there, there wasn't anything there. It didn't cross my mind because it is such a well of emptiness between us that it doesn't cross my mind. You know, family just is just a word to me because that's what I've always been shown. I've I've never had any kind of close familial relationship. Now we've we've suddenly come across something else that's not particularly been good in your life, which is consent. Yeah, consent is a very is a is a very important thing to me. I post on Instagram all the time of like, do you consent to be on this like list? Because I don't want to force any images on anybody that doesn't want to see it, you know? Yeah. And when I I found this magazine that I thought was incredible, this they go around different cities every issue and they um photograph different queer people and it's just an incredible idea. And I remember just like being a fanboy and being like, oh, this is a really great, awesome idea. And I love this. It's so amazing you're doing it. And then getting a message from the photographer being like, oh yeah, 
um, well, we're not doing an issue. We're not doing an issue in London, but like I could come photograph you sometime. So I'd arranged to have it done at a friend's place, but they had to pull out the last minute. They couldn't have their location because it was a rental and it just didn't work. Mm. So I said, okay, well, you can come to my place. My flat is very small <laughs> in South London, but there's no other kind of option. You know, we'd um, agreed on this date and I'd already pulled out of other photo shoots due to other issues. So I said, okay, let's just do it. And so he came over and um, I'd never met this guy before, never seen an image of him. And he was he was all right. He was friendly. And every issue in this magazine is normally people just getting undressed and different different um, levels of nakedness, you know, mm. different exhibitions, whatever they're comfortable with. But as the day progressed and I got more and more naked, it was great. It was liberating. It was amazing. It's something I've never, I'm comfortable with doing that anyway. But I remember being on the, on the bed, on my bed mm. and being face down. I'd just done a photo like where my butt was right in, in the camera you know it was great image uh, and then he said to me oh do you want to take a break and i was like yeah sure great it was taking photos for an hour like why not we've done all these locations mm. and the next thing you know he's like rubbing his hands all over me i kind of froze because i'd had experiences before where i'd um been cruising and i'd had somebody try to rape me and it i just kind of froze because i thought i don't know what's happening i don't know where i am i don't know what well, I know where I am. I'm at home, mm. but I don't know who this person is. I don't know what they're capable of. I don't know what they could do or what they couldn't do. And I just remember thinking, okay, I just have to, I just have to go ahead with this to, to, um, mm. to make it end and to make it go away, you know, wow. because I don't know where this situation is going to lead me. Exactly. If you say no, anything could happen. You could. Yeah. You don't know, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm at home. I, <sighs> Then this consent seems to have turned into like a, to to rape again. It did. I, in a sense, um, I'm sure this person wouldn't think of it that. I'm sure the photographer yeah. wouldn't think of it that way. You know, a lot of people wouldn't do. But just because somebody doesn't say no doesn't mean it's con it, it's consent. Mm. It. I think sometimes the reaction from people says a lot, and I didn't know how to respond. I was frozen, and I remember feeling physically sick inside, but not knowing what I could do. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, okay, I just have to get this over and done with as fast as possible. I would, I would hope I could say I wouldn't fall back on that now because I'm a stronger person. But five years later, I'm still dealing with the trauma and the repercussions from that. After the photo shoot, it was six months of not seeing any of the images, not knowing what was happening to it. The next thing I knew, he processed all the photos and was like, oh, I'm going to sell it. And then he showed his true colors because... I have a following on social media. I know I have a following mm. on social media and people bought it and he saw that. And I don't know whether people hadn't bought the additional issues before, but the next thing I knew the next day, he'd bundled it all into these zines for $14. And he was selling me as a package rather mm. than just me. And I, I remember messaging him and saying, oh, this cool that you've done that how come you've done that and he said well it's not about the individual person it's about the whole package and i thought well i've had this fucking terrible situation with you and then you're just going to make money out of that that just made me feel physically sick again it made me feel used hmm. especially six or seven months later to yeah. have to have that happen and i thought i'm just never going to have that i'm never going to put myself in that situation again and that shut me off from a lot of people especially after having a bad porn experience and all of this stuff that made me go, I'm not going down that road. If I'm going to do anything from now on, it's going to be by my choice. I think the biggest thing that I learned from the whole situation was if you feel something, say it. Where are you now? Like in your mind, in your body, in your health? I feel like I'm in a pretty comfortable place. You know, um, I'm still dealing a lot with my ink disorder. That's an everyday thing. Um I'm just having to like not look in the mirror as much because if I look in the mirror, I feel freaking hideous. Mm -hmm. But I'm taking my time out to just um, focus and work on content. And because um, obviously I, I'm, I make adult content. Mm -hmm. I make my own personal adult content, not on OnlyFans or anything. I just, I, I have my own um, 
platform for that yeah. um, on my Google Drive of a bunch of content that I try and work and focus on. And um, I'm looking forward to doing more of that yeah. as the year progresses and things open up, you know. I got to know um, a writer called Dan Farrell recently. He's a really great guy. He writes a lot of like science fiction nice. um, stories. And he's working on his first novel to do with a... Um, a gay escort sex worker mm. and i've been kind of helping him with little ideas here and there based on my own experiences because i've been paid for sex before and whatever comes from that is yeah. it's an exciting thing to be involved in you That's know amazing. maybe i'll have a really good one book one day maybe i'll have a really good book one day i think so i think everything that you've gone through you said it can turn into a book <laughs> you know it's really hard to just sit down and even go into my life because i've mm. Like I said before, I've lived a hundred lives in one life. I couldn't even narrow it down into one podcast, one segment, yeah. one episode, because there's been so many things that I think we go through, especially as queer people, mm. we kind of segment stuff in and we put stuff behind doors and every now and yeah. then a door opens and something else comes out and you think, wow, how did I face that? How was I strong enough to face that? Yeah. And the only thing I can say to that is you did because you are because you're meant to be here. I want to bring the best out in people. I want to bring the best out in myself. And I want to spread love to people. And that's a really nice thing to do. I want three words from you when you think about your childhood. Yeah. That describe your childhood. Lonely, dark, and scared. And what would the three words be as of today? Bright, bold, and colourful. Wow. And I say colourful because... I live in my color. I'm very proud of my Indian skin that I'm in. I'm not going to hide my color for anybody. And it definitely will resonate with somebody. And I think that if, maybe if anyone wants to get in touch with you, do you want to show up your social medias? Yeah, sure. So if you want to get in touch with me, you can um, at me at Chris Vanji on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, that's C-H-R-I-S-V-A-N-J-I-E or um, on Instagram, it's Story of a Tart. For anybody that has a question about that, it's based on um, a step song, which is also then a Benny Anderson band song called Story of a Heart. Mm. <laughs> so that's that's why it's yeah. Story of a Tart. And um, yeah, feel free to message me. Um, I'm always like, I'm, 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 I'm a beacon. Everything stays with me. Mm -hmm. So don't worry about that, you know. And there are, there, are, there are services out there if you need. So I yeah, can well, always help help line you up to them as well. Well, we'll list them in, in the description as well. And hopefully it, it has helped with this, this story from Chris. And uh, more important than ever, just be kind to each other, I think. Yeah, be kind. Just, just be you. Just be authentically you. And yeah. don't judge people. You know, when, when, we're, not, we're not in church for a reason. We don't judge people. We're burning church. Well, thank you very much, Chris. This has been Shades of Gay, and I uh, hope you tune in for our next edition. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, babe. Thank you for having me. Let me tell my story. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye, Chris. Bye.